Welcome to the most energetic, positive, happy, and healthy podcast in the world. Living the dream. Dream stands for diet, rest, exercise, attitude, and meaning. I'm your host, certified health coach, motivational speaker, sober since July of 2016, American Ninja Warrior competitor, two-time world record holder, and ultra-marathoner, Matt Scaletti. Here we go! Welcome back to the Live in the Dream podcast. I'm your host, Matt Scaletti, and I am so pumped for who is sitting next to me virtually anyways. This is Mona Patel. She is the founder and executive director at the San Antonio Amputee Foundation. At 17 years old, she was involved in a traumatic accident that left her with an amputated right leg. Instead of giving up, Mona used this event to become a legitimate force for good. She runs her own nonprofit. She's run a half marathon And she's also biked 44 miles in a team triathlon event. In 2015, Mona took a group of nine other amputees and summited Mount Kilimanjaro. She was selected as one of CNN's top 10 heroes of 2017. And this woman for sure is a hero of mine. Mona, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be fun. Thank you for just even inviting me to be interviewed by you and just thank you for feeling my story was worthy of this dialogue. It's very worthy and you're so humble and now I'm going to make you bring out all these amazing things about you because I can't wait to hear about it. (laughs) Okay so we got a little bit of the background of your story and we're going to go into details on all those aspects of it. Can you give us a little bit of background of who Mona was leading up to 1990 when this accident happened? Absolutely. So I was born and raised here in the States, um, born in New Jersey and raised in Los Angeles and raised by very, very loving, but very traditional East Indian parents. And as you can imagine, um, being raised in a Western world by Eastern culture, you know, was quite challenging, you know, being raised margin like that had, you know, I did have a good amount of challenges to, to deal with while I was a teenager growing up and, and up until my accident. Um, very patriarchal culture, very beautiful culture. You know, I love, love the Indian culture. You know, we have so many positives, um, you know, just our deep respect of family and our elders and, you know, always taking care of our elders um, Bollywood movies, if you ever watch one of those, a song oh. and dance. <laughs> What's that? You gotta enlighten us. I don't know what that is. So India makes record numbers of movies in a year, in every year. I mean, they, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of movies, and Indian movies are about three hours long. Wow. Two and a half hours of our movies are filled with song and dance. Oh, I like Beautiful. that. You know, in one song, the actor, actress will change their clothes like 50 times. You know, you fast forward through them to get to the meat of the movie, you know, you'll be done in 30 minutes. Just beautiful, just beautiful scenery. Um, So, you know, very patriarchal culture. And being the only daughter, I was robbed of a lot of, um, I don't know, robbed a lot of the, robbed with a lot of the um, 
a lot of double standards. My brother was, you know, able to play sports, stay after school, have friends over. And when I was expected, as soon as the bell rang, you know, I had to rush home to either do homework or help mom in the kitchen. And I was raised to always stay close to home, safety of parents, because my whole upbringing, I was raised with um, the notion of arranged marriages being my, my future. Mm. Yeah. So okay. my parents had to make sure that they protected my reputation so I would stay marketable, you know, for them to find a suitable family for me to marry into. Yeah, it's just when you said marketable, it's, it's just almost like I, I can't understand. You know, I, I think not having that background, it makes it difficult for me to understand that marketable idea that you you mentioned before we recorded. So um, and then so something occurred where your quote unquote marketability changed, correct? Right. And, you know, with arranged marriages, um they look at superficial attributes to match you up with a family. It could be your parents' background, um, the boys' education, the color of your skin. Um, you know, I wasn't allowed to wear sleeveless. I wasn't allowed to go out in the sun very much. You know, for just, they, my parents had a big burden to marry me off into a good family. And I, I never questioned it. You know, I respected my parents, I respected my culture, and I understood where they're, you know, where they came from. Um, the only place where I didn't rebel against my culture, but the thing that I really wanted was a college education before my parents married me off. And when I was 15 years old, I had overheard my mom on the phone with a matchmaker, 15 and I stood frozen in the hallway thinking, my God, you know, this is actually happening. I, have, I had female cousins who did get married off when they were still in high school. So I knew there was a possibility. So I went to the next day, I went to my high school counselor and explained the situation to him. And I told him I need to graduate and I need to start college as soon as possible. So he made it happen. And I started, I graduated high school and I started learn how to drive a car and I started college all at the age of 16. Wow. So did your parents know that you were going through this or were, like when they were on the phone with this, with this other guy, did you, did they know what you wanted and, and they allowed that to happen? They did. They knew that I wanted to, you know, have a college education, but they knew that I wouldn't have graduated and finished college, you know, before I, you know, they knew I'd be, I would have gotten married well before I would have graduated uh, college. And then once I would get married, it would be upon my husband and my in-laws discretion as to whether or not they allowed me to continue and finish college. Mm. And I always knew young Matt, just in case my marriage didn't keep me happy and I wanted out, I wanted some type of a safety and some type of a um, something to fall back on. I had, like I said, my female cousins, I saw their, their experiences and they were stuck. They were so unhappy, but they had nowhere to go. And I didn't want that to be my fate. So I started college at 16 and two terms into my college career, I was walking on my university campus and I was struck from behind a couple of times by a drunk driver. And that changed 
everything, you know, my, um, it just changed my whole, my parents' whole outlook on, you know, on my life and my future. So this, I mean, can you take us through, you're just minding your own business, walking on the college campus, and then do you remember any of this happening, or were you just out of it, knocked out? So I, there is um, a service road that connects the parking lot to campus, and it's a commonly used pathway to get back and forth for faculty, students alike. And I had parked my car, and I was walking on that service road, and I did notice the car parked on the side of the service road. And if I even thought anything, I thought maybe he's waiting for someone to get out of class or something. And we had full eye contact. And I distinctly remember walking around his car to the right-hand side of the road, perfect pedestrian. And that's all I remember. And they were, there happened to be two students that were watching me as I entered the scene. So they saw everything. And so one of them came running to me. One of them went to the perpetrator's car and took the keys out of the ignition. And their account on what happened was, as I was walking on the right-hand side of his, the, uh, the right-hand side of his car, he was idling his motor, which of course I wasn't aware of. And he, as soon as I passed his car, he floored it. I, he hit me one the first time and I flew up across. His car kept going, so I landed back on his car. And then he pinned me between his car and a metal railing. And that's what pretty much smashed my, um, my leg and my foot. And then I landed on the concrete sitting up. You know, my books were scattered everywhere. And then I knew that I had just gotten hit by a car, but I didn't know the extent of the, of the injuries. So when, I mean, walk us through, you know, I'm assuming you, you rushed to the hospital and then when did you know, I mean, did you think you were going to be alive the whole time or was that a, was that a scare? Um, you know, adrenaline really protects you from a lot from shock and didn't really feel a whole lot of pain, I think, because of the shock. Um, I remember when I was laying on the concrete, somebody had asked me who they could call. And I remember looking at my watch and saying, okay, it's this time. My mom's going to be home watching General Hospital. <laughs> this is the phone number. But when you call her, make sure you do not tell her the extent of my injury. Mm. And so mom and dad met us at the first hospital um, close to my college. And amputation was talked about there. And there was an Indian nurse actually that overheard the doctor mention the word amputation. So he took it upon himself to call the UCLA Medical Center. And they sent a helicopter and then airlifted me to the UCLA Medical Center. Oh. And then um, by the time my parents got there, you know, the ortho team and the plastic team, they were able to come and kind of assess the situation. And because I was a minor, my parents were given the option of either amputation below the knee or limb salvage. And I think as any parent would, and as I would, my parents opted for limb salvage. And so they tried for seven years to salvage my leg. And um, they had amputated half of my foot initially. So for the first seven years, I had half of a foot. And fast forward, seven years, I was getting ready for surgery number 21. And I was just kind of, I was done. I was tired of um, the repeated cycles of physical therapy, being in and out of the operating room, um, the chronic pain. So I was at a crossroads now. Was it time to go ahead and finally amputate my leg for, in hopes of a better quality of life? Yeah. So yeah. those seven, those seven years from 1990 to 1997, 
you were well, like seven, 16, 17 to your early 20s. I mean, were you just physical therapy four times a week and constantly in and out of doctor's appointments and all that? Exactly. Constantly in and out of the hospital, in and out of doctor's appointments for follow-ups, um, taking pain medications, mm. um, physical therapy. I had a trainer that I would you know, see three times a week. So my life, but I was still in college. So my accident was a big blessing in that sense where I was able to finish college, um, where marriage wasn't a, a big priority for my parents because I was going through, you know, still so much medical care. And that's when my parents, uh, you know, Matt, it was so funny because at the hospital, there were a lot of boys that happened to be visiting me. And my parents were looking around like, you know what, all these boys can't be her boyfriends. She just must have a lot of boyfriends. <laughs> so my parents just really got a different perspective and of what's important. Um, their mindset changed big time, you know, around the subject of arranged marriage. And when I was in the, uh, when I remember waking up in the ICU and seeing my parents at my, my bedside, of course, crying. And as a daughter in that situation, I see my parents crying and you think you understand the depth of their pain and their grief, which I did understand. But on top of their tears, they told me something that really hit me hard. Um, here I was as a 17 year old with a major disability, trying to wrap my head and my heart around what was happening. And my parents told me, they, they tell me that, um, you know, now that you have this disability, our culture is going to judge you and they're going to view you as being less than. So we don't expect you to have an arranged marriage anymore. And we just hope that you end up still finding, you know, a boy from our culture. And, you know, I'll never forget thinking, you know, I'm, I've lost my foot. I might still lose my leg. Does this mean that I'm not worthy of finding love, you know, worthy of maybe becoming a mother in the future? And so, I mean, it hit me hard and it left me with, a, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of extra things to think about and to process. Yeah, I was just going to follow up and just say, I mean, I remember at that age, you know, I didn't listen to everything my parents said, but I clearly believed a lot of the same things they believed. So if they told, if your parents told you something like that, at some point, you obviously didn't believe it because you've done all these amazing things in your life. So how long did it take for you to realize you are a amazing woman and a complete badass and get over the fact that, you know, you're not marketable. Um, from a very early, early point after my accident, I had made a decision, you know, was I going to lay here and be a victim or was I going to just fight? And where that strength came from Matt, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. Because the personality and the type of, person I was before I got into my accident was night and day from the person I became after I was hit with this adversity, you know, this challenge. And wherever this strength came from has carried me to this day. Hmm. And I have never, ever looked at myself as, you know, as a victim. And I knew that, you know, I have to stay strong. My parents need me to be strong. 
and, you know, I've just been a fighter you know, ever since. And, you know, all the different inevitable adversities that we all face in life, you know, and the lessons we learn from those have, you know, taken me to, to the woman I am today. It's your perspective on all of this to me. I'm writing things down. Like how many times you're able to turn what you could see as a huge negative and spin it into, you said it yourself, blessing. I mean, you're using the word blessing. And for everyone listening or watching, Mona, she just had some, some upgrades and things she needed to fix in the house, some surprises, if you will. And she smiles through the whole thing. They're just inconveniences, she tells me. And it's just amazing to see this perspective you have and how quickly you're able to, like you said, not be a victim and dwell on a negative, but turn it into a positive. Has that just always been who you are? Is that just ingrained in you? Um, I think it's, it, it, it has been. Since my accident, I'm telling you, it's like pre-accident and post-accident. Hmm. Um, and, and like some of my unfortunate things in that happened in the household, you know, my fridge gave out. Okay, the silver lining, it's an opportunity to clean my fridge out. You know, everything spoiled. I had to throw everything out. But hey, it's not my, my fridge is squeaky clean right now. Um, and my kids watch me. You know, they watch how I react to different challenges, big and small in my life. You know, I will go into my, my marital um, story, but they watch me. And being um, living a life of service, those that I serve, the tribe that watches me, that I get to serve, they watch me. And, you know, I always view challenges and adversities as opportunities to, you know, just kind of learn things about ourselves. And if we reacted in maybe a not so positive way, okay, well, that's an opportunity for us to reflect back and make changes, right? Mm -hmm. Because well, um, when the next inevitable event happens, okay, hopefully I'll grow from getting pissed off or angry or throwing something, you know, and not do that again. <laughs> it's always every opportunity to grow. I love that. I love that mentality. I think that's clearly what's been a big part of your massive successes so far. I need to ask one final question about the accident and then we'll move on to who you became afterwards, who are you, you are still becoming afterwards. Were you, uh, this is kind of a deep question, but I can't help but think about it. Were you able to forgive this individual and how long did it take you and have you let it just completely, you know, forgiven him or her? You know, I don't know if I've ever even been asked that question, Matt, honestly, um, of all the people that have asked me different questions and in interviews. Um, I have never given him a voice. I've never um, truly, I saw him two times in court, um, you know, and he was on welfare. You know, I didn't get a penny out of him and that's fine. You know, I don't know if I'd be the woman I am today if I got millions of dollars out of it. Um, but I mean, there was nothing to forgive because I truly never let him be part of my story. Um, mm, that's so good. You know, and if, if, if I had to think even deeper, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for this experience in my life. I would never go back and change anything. So in a sense, you know, he was the one that caused it. You know, I don't even know if I want to give him that much credit for a voice. So to answer your question, I've never needed to forgive him because I was never upset at him. It was just something that happened and I had to 
work myself through it. That's so good. That's so good. I, I just heard something like a week ago about in order to forgive, that means you must first place blame, something along the lines of that. And I can't, I'm thinking about you and just it sounds like you never really blamed this individual. So there was no reason to forgive them. That's a powerful, wow, this is, this is so good. You're just <laughs> blowing my mind. Uh, okay, so 1997 happens. You decide to amputate um, your right leg. And so walk us through what happened after that and, and kind of lead us into this creating the nonprofit that you created. So... 1997, I was getting ready for surgery number 21, and we talked about how you know, I was getting tired of being <laughs> cut on in and out of the operating room, the repeated cycles of physical therapy, the chronic pain, the limited endurance. Um, and so I thought maybe it's time. You know, I wanted a better quality of life. I didn't have children at the time. And my biggest question and dilemma was if I make this decision to amputate my leg, will it hinder pregnancy, being able to take care of my future children, especially mm -hmm. when they're newborns. Mm -hmm. And I looked for a support group to go and talk to people. What's your life like? And there was not a support group in San Antonio at the time, but I was very, very fortunate to be able to find um, a lady who had an above knee amputation and three children after her accident and her amputation. Mm. She put so much hope in my heart that I would be able to be, you know, the best mother ever. I just had to figure things out differently. And I called my surgeon and scheduled my surgery. And then I also vowed that once I got back on my feet, I would start a support group because there have to be other people like me, you know, going through situations like this and have questions. So I did get back on my feet, of course, and started that support group. And that support group was started almost 25 years ago. And we have been just blessed to become one of the strongest amputee support programs in the country. I mean, it's just, we're going to go deeper into that because I, I just think it's amazing. Were, were you, I can't, I don't know if I remember, were you married at the time of the amputation? So, yes, I was married at the time of my amputation. Um, so I did end up marrying my parents' best friend's son. Mm, okay. So my in-laws were like another set of parents to me. They're from San Antonio. Of course, I was born in, or raised in Los Angeles. And I would come to San Antonio to spend weekends with my aunt and uncle. You know, no relationship, just yeah. family friends. Love it. And they treated me like a daughter. And so when I got a phone call from their son, you remember, I don't know how old you are. But do, you ever, do you remember call waiting on phones? Oh, yeah. I'm 36. Yeah, I, I lived through all that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you're not that. Well, I'm almost 50. But um, so I was talking to my mom on the phone and I get a call. I click over and it's my husband or ex-husband now. Yeah. And I click back over to tell my mom and she's so excited because in our culture, a boy and girl don't talk just for the sake of it. They talk, you know, with the idea of are we going to be compatible for marriage? So, you know, I told her, I'll call her right back. And so we had a telephone friendship for about six months. Wow. And he convinced me to come to Austin. He was studying at UT Austin at the time. And we spent about two weeks together. 
And, you know, we decided, okay, we're getting along pretty well. Let's just go ahead and get married. And his parents did not know that we were talking. And I had asked him not to tell his parents because I thought that because they already loved me and they were anxious for their son to get married, that they would want us to make a decision sooner than we knew if we were compatible. Got it. Yeah. So we're in Austin. He leaves. He doesn't take me. He goes to his parents' house and he tells them he found he found his bride. And to all of our shock, he was um, given an ultimatum. They did not want a disabled daughter-in-law. So oh, he, us or us or her. And so he ended up, you know, choosing to marry me. And he was completely one hundred percent disowned from his family. Oh my God. The wedding, they forbid everyone in their family to supporting, you know, my husband and coming to the wedding. Um, and it was hard. That rejection was, it was tough. It was tough because these are people that um, were family already to us. And I endeared them like another set of parents, you know, to be judged, um, you know, because of my disability. And when we got married, I was only missing half of a foot. I still had my leg and um, yeah. And, Did that, then, and that never, the relationship with, it would have been your, your mother-in-law and father-in-law, never, nothing ever, no relationship ever happened between them? No, we did eight years into our marriage. Um, I tried for so hard, I think, than any woman would ever try, Matt, with, I mean, if I could tell you story after story, I would they would come over. They accepted my husband back into their lives. They would come over to our home, ring the doorbell. I would open it and they would act like a ghost open the door. I would ask them if they wanted anything to eat or drink. And it was, they wouldn't acknowledge my existence at all. And then seven years into our marriage, we had our first daughter. And as we were going home, you know, they didn't come visit. We had told them, you know, come visit your new, your first granddaughter. And I sat my husband down before we brought Anaya home. And I told him, I said, you know, I've tried for seven years. I can't do it anymore. We have a family now. And I want us to focus on our family. And then one year after that, um, eight years into our marriage, he got sick with meningitis. And, you know, I let my walls down and communicated with my in-laws. And that kind of started building the bridge between our, um, in our relationship. And then my father-in-law started seeing the work I was doing in the community he saw something on news. I had um, helped with um, having a legislative mandate passed for better prosthetic care. And he sent me an email the next day. And it was simply, I'm very proud of you. Matt, I'm telling you of all the emails and feedback I've ever gotten from the work that I do, the most important email I have ever gotten in my life. Wow. So that was that. And then 15, 16 years into our marriage, um, we, I separated, we ended up getting divorced and I'll never forget the day I kicked my, my husband out, my in-laws came over and my father-in-law hugged me and cried and cried and told me that they didn't want to lose me, you know, and to take my time that they would always be there for me. And so it was a complete turnaround. Wow. That's, inc I wonder what the, I mean, it is a beautiful turnaround that they, you know, decided to put the, you know, non-marketability behind them and find out who the real you is. I mean, I think that's, that's incredible. I wonder what, was it due to your service, you think, that they had a change of heart? I think they, they knew who I was as a person because they knew me from, from childhood. 
Um, they saw the type of mother I was to their grandchildren. They saw, yes, the service uh, that I was doing for our community. And I was a very traditional daughter-in-law. I mean, I would serve them. I would, you know, I was a very obedient daughter-in-law. And so there was really nothing for them to, there was nothing negative for them to say. You know, there was a point also where for the first, I would say first half of our marriage, I used to always wear pants around them. And I had this epiphany one day that, you know, I'm not going to give them control over judging me or if they're embarrassed because I'm wearing shorts, that's not my problem. And so I started wearing, you know, skirts at my knee and I started wearing shorts um, and, you know, they had to get used to it. I love that. I'm, I'm so glad you did that. That's a great, that's a great story. And I think there's such a massive embedded insight in there, which is, to, and I know it's probably a little bit different when it's close family, but not worrying about other people's opinions and living your life true to you. And I think that's a huge takeaway from your story and that mini story inside of your bigger story. That's a huge deal. Just being able to find the real you. It is because pre-accident, you know, I was raised to live for my culture. I was raised to live for my parents. Uh, you know, I had no voice, you know, what I wanted didn't really matter. Um, so having that shift was, is, is huge. I, I totally agree. And do, do you, I'm assuming the accent is a big part of that, but I'm trying to piece together a lot of your story and it feels like growing up and maybe even in, in your marriage that you were still one to serve, but almost like you weren't on the same level. I don't know if, if I'm saying that correctly or not, but I guess my question is you've accomplished so much, which we'll get into. How do you flip the switch from this mentality of maybe I'm not supposed to be a leader and I'm just supposed to do what others tell me to, I need to live my life in the best way possible so I can serve the most people. How do you, how do you change that mentality? Cause it seems like that's a big shift. It was, I guess it was more, it was just gradual. Um, I started with a support group, you know, and for the first five, six years, it was just a very small support group. Five or six people would attend month after month after month. And then, um, you know, slowly but surely it grew. And as it grew, my leadership skills grew. And, you know, I had briefly mentioned that I had um, been part of some legislative uh, grassroots efforts. And I had led statewide um, legislative efforts to get some uh, better insurance mandates passed for prosthetics and orthotics. And I was kind of forced into that role, not forced, but um, they had asked me to take on this big position. And politically, like I got a D in political science. <laughs> in my mind, I have no interest in politics. And I have no idea how, how any of that worked. <laughs> but I understood, you know, children were being denied prosthetics. You know, oh. there were, they were five when they got this prosthetic leg. They're seven now. They've grown, you know, their foot's bigger, you know, and someone, you know, insurance was, insurances were putting ridiculous caps on prosthetics. And I understood, you know, and so when you have passion for something, so I took on the challenge and that whole, that win gave my leadership 
such a boost. I, I came out of that knowing that, okay, you know what? I do possess some skills and I can do some bigger things on a bigger scale for people. You sure can. And you're proving that. So you changed, you, you basically changed a law like in the insurance world. And- yes. So now private insurances that are based in Texas cannot put any caps. If Medicare pays for it, then they have to be on par with Medicare guidelines. So if a child needs a new prosthesis every 12 months, or even within the 12 months, if it's medically justified by their physician, private insurances have to pay. Um, So yeah, as long as it's medically necessary and Medicare would pay for it, then every commercial insurance based in Texas has to pay for it as well. That's amazing. Um, That was huge. Yeah. So that whole experience really, truly um, boosted, you know, my, um, my self-esteem, my self-confidence to be able to lead. Yes. You, I told everyone leading in that you're awesome. And now I think everyone's understanding how amazing you, I mean, this is just, we're not even into the, some of the most impressive things you've ever done yet. So I, I need to hear about, because for all listeners and viewers, I have not heard this story in detail yet, and I'm very excited about this. 2015, Mount Kilimanjaro. I mean, I have like 400 questions, but I mean, why, why Mount Kilimanjaro? How did you think you could even do this? And, you know, walk us through that. So I think you and I and, you know, a lot of us that are in this tribe with Jesse Itzler, we operate on goals. And, um, you know, I've been dating um, a a wonderful man for the past eight years, and he's taught me the importance of setting goals. And I had just gotten done with a crazy Navy SEAL event called SEAL Fit and changed my whole perspective mentally. My mindset was just altered forever after that event. But coming out of there, you know, George asks me, what's your next goal what you know what's next and so I said well what about Mount Kilimanjaro and so not having been in too high of altitude he's like well let's go tackle Machu Picchu and kind of see how you do in that altitude first so we trained and went to Peru and did the Machu Picchu and then when I got back I started putting my team together well it was supposed to be a trip for my boyfriend and I and I had become nonprofit recently And I thought, you know what, let me make this a journey and experience for a bunch of amputees. So I put my medical crew together first. I took a physician, a physical therapist, a prosthetist, and a medic with us. And then I carefully selected our nine amputees. And we started fundraising. We started training. And December, late December of 2015, we got on a plane and flew to Tanzania, Africa. How, how did, so you said it was you and nine other amputees? So nine total with me. Nine total. So did the other, did the other eight, I mean, when you asked them this, were they like, what are you nuts? Like, I'm not yes. going to, is that what they said? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, they completely were just shocked with my question because, you know, they, a couple of them had never even left Texas. One had never even gone on an airplane before. Um, you know, and, you know, and they believed in my leadership. And so all of them said yes. And Corey was the one who climbed on crutches. He has a very high level amputation at the hip. And so he doesn't use prosthetics because he's faster on crutches. And I had seen a video of somebody, a military um, 
a female vet climbing Kilimanjaro on crutches. And so the first person I thought of when I saw her was Corey. And yeah, he was beyond shocked. His wife was like, oh, are you kidding me? That's crazy. No way. So we had a, you know, a meeting at my house to kind of talk about things. And he took on the challenge and he summited 19,341 feet on crutches. Oh my. So, I mean, while everyone else's legs are burning, he's all upper body. That's all. Yep. Right. Yep. Oh my. So and, yep, the physical therapist was mainly for him to work out, you know, his shoulders and his arms. Yep. So did you guys, did the nine of you do some training together and just keep in touch with each other to help you? Yes, we did. we did. We had a private Facebook page that we're all, you know, stayed accountable to each other. We had mandatory hikes weekly that we would do together. And then, you know, we have no altitude here, um, no elevation here in, te in Texas, so San Antonio. Um, so we had gone for a altitude training hike in New Mexico. So that was, you know, back to back two hikes and two people, you know, couldn't, couldn't make that. So then they were off the team. Um, so yeah, we, we did a lot of training and then there would be times where I would hire trainers and they would put us through like a Saturday um, fitness program. Um, so yeah, we trained physically, we trained, you know, mentally we did things um, and then of course fundraised. Yeah. So I mean, I'm just picturing you all, you know, going up this mountain. How long, I don't even know how long it takes to get to the top. Like, how long is the trip? So the route that we took, um, it was six days to the summit and then two days to exit. Yeah, and you go through every climate. You know, we started in the rainforest. Um, and end of December, we summited in uh, early in January 2016, and the weather was great. You know, we just um, didn't have any type of storms or any of it was um so yeah we were blessed with weather weather was good um we had one individual not make it because he got altitude sickness super early on day two he got altitude sickness so we had to send him back um and the rest of us just you know we hit walls but we you know we had each other it was I love that. collective resolve of the team that just that's i mean i picked this team so carefully because I needed people who would really support each other, you know, and, and work as a team and, and ego. I can't, it's, there was no ego. You don't do well. <laughs> uh -uh. Can, you, can you attempt to explain in words the feeling when the, the team was standing on top of, or, or maybe when you first came over the last ridge and you all got to the top? I mean, can you attempt to try to tell us how that felt? So, I mean, in reality, we weren't even together because people were struggling with different things. And so we had different um, support crew with every individual. So I was a part of the first, I would say first eight that summited. And I had major um, altitude sickness in the form of um, just being sleepy. Mm. I got, I mean, I think about 17,000 feet, I could not stay awake. And so one of wow. our, guides was like my one-on-one -on -one. I mean I tried every trick to stay awake but it was like I was drugged I mean that's how altitude affected me we had one guy that was just super super nauseous when he got back down to base camp you know we had to put an IV in him he was uh -huh. our prosthetist um so a couple of us as soon as we got to the summit we took pictures and I don't think I had any you know any great you know, profound thoughts. I just needed to get down because I was just not feeling well. Yeah. Um, 
And then it was truly once we got back down to our base camp for the night is when we all gathered as a group and we reflected on, you know, how we felt now that we were back in the safety of our tents and being together, everyone's safe, um, you know, a couple of sores and blisters, but you know what? The body heals. So worth it. I'm sure it was, what's, I might ask you a really tough question to see if you can narrow this down. But if I, if I asked you, Mona, what's one, what's one thing you learned or what was the major takeaway? If you could narrow it down to just one massive uh, learning thing that you got throughout this experience. So when I put this Mount Kilimanjaro experience expedition together, truly what I wanted was to be able to come back and share a testimony with others that, yeah, we may have literally climbed this really tall mountain, but with the right mindset and the right attitude, you know, we all can climb the different summits in our lives. And that was the lesson that we have been so blessed to be able to share with thousands of people since we got back. And Corey, the one that I mentioned who climbed on crutches, I'll never forget, Matt, a couple of months after we got back, his wife called me and hearing the tears in her voice as she thanked me for believing in her husband. And she told me that my kids finally have their fun, playful dad back. Oh. And I finally have my loving, confident husband back. And I mean, every ounce of effort you know, that I put into making that happen for all of us was so worth it. Oh, that's incredible. What a story. I mean, that's, I was, I, I was going to ask you this, but now I know the answer. If you got more joy from seeing other people make it to the top than you Always. did for yourself. Always. You that's know, so amazing. To set the stage for, you know, whoever I'm blessed to work with and help and just watching them shine gives me, um, the most amazing feeling and that fuels me just to wake up every day and do it again. Oh, it's so good. And there's, is it a YouTube video of the whole, you guys got a great video, right? Yeah, it's a 12 minute video. Um, so we had a film crew obviously come with us and um, they wanted to do like a human interest type documentary, but we had some falling outs with the, with the production crew. And so they had done a 12 minute video as advertising for fundraising. And so that's what we use. And that's all I need. You know, if you put that on your, um, as a link in your show notes or whatever, um, you know, that's been shown at opening ceremonies, closing ceremonies. I watched, you know, I played it for people that are pre like in the pre-op room before surgery and it puts so much hope into people's hearts. And so that 12 minutes is all we need. So there's a, and it's on YouTube. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, we'll definitely link that in the show notes because I watched that video and it's, I need to get my wife to watch it because she will love it too. So that's a, that's a great, great video. So you come back, you have some major takeaways, you're still running your nonprofit and then kind of a big thing happens in 2017 with the CNN Heroes. What's, how did it come about? What's the story? And uh, how can people check that out too? So some of, some of your viewers might be familiar with something called CNN Heroes. And CNN um, gets thousands of nominations every year from all over the world. Uh, I think their tagline is 
ordinary people doing extraordinary things, something like that. And so I had, I was taking a nap one day and I got a phone call and I get all kinds of phone calls from people needing different services, you know, amputee related. And she starts asking me all these questions and the questions were a little different. So I sat up and I'm like, okay, who are you? And so she's like, well, let me be transparent. You know, I'm with um, Turner Broadcasting with CNN. You were nominated for, you know, this award. And I didn't know anything about the award at that time and told her, thank you. You know, I'll think about it. And I'll get back to you. Um, <laughs> not accepting it, you know, and you know, you don't do, you don't serve for, you just, you just, I don't. Um, but my boyfriend had reminded me that if you do accept this award, you know, your reach may just be broadened tenfold. And so I graciously accepted the award and um, of the 30 or 40 that they pick, then the CNN Hero Committee picks the top 10 and the top 10 are flown to New York City for a star-studded tribute show, red carpet, photographers everywhere. I mean, if there was ever, you know, like just our moment of shining and feeling like a celebrity, that was it. Um, and so they have different celebrities giving the each 10 heroes their awards and it was just a spectacular night and you know I made my mom and dad super super proud that's you know, can you imagine I, yeah you know so it was um I was uh, grateful that you know I changed my my perspective you know on accepting that award and you know that CNN accolade, you know, has given our foundation even more opportunity to reach so many more people. You have to be the only person that, when that whoever called said, you know what, let me, let me, I'll check my schedule. Let me get back to you on that. You're so No, humble. it wasn't my schedule. It was, it was so let humble. me just check. I mean, let me, let me think about it. <laughs> oh, but I mean, I shouldn't have said like that. It's because you're so humble. It's just incredible that you, it sounds like you don't want it to be Mona, Mona, Mona. I mean, you want it to be about everybody else. No. It's just incredible. What? I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know exactly how to ask this question. But I mean, when you when I hear the word disability, can you can you speak to that? Because it's pretty obvious that you don't lack for for anything, and you have this enormous heart and this service minded mindset that's incredible. So, I mean, what? What comes to mind when you hear disability and how, can you speak to that a little bit? The mindset, you know, yes, 100%. I have a disability, you know, I'm not one of those that, you know, has to be firm with, you know, I'm not handicapped. I'm not, you know, it's a word. Yeah. I have a disability. I have a disabled placard that I hang on my, you know, on my review mirror. Um, but does, does that define anything that I do? Absolutely not. You know, again, there's a lot of perks. <laughs> I had to get parking, you know, back in the day with at Disney World, you know, you get to board rides first. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't, you know, there's a lot of perks, but it, it doesn't define what I can do. Yes, I know that I'm going to have to do things a little bit differently, a little bit slower, a little bit more carefully. I have to sit down when I take a shower. Um, you know, it, it's a mindset. And from the beginning, you know, the people that I am so blessed and privileged to work with, it's something I try to remind them about. You have to decide, you know, if you're going to be a victim to this or if you're going to stay in control, you know, and, and you do have a choice. A choice is like our superpower, you know, that's like, um, you know, nobody can take choice away from us. And 
I'll never forget there was, um, I was in an elevator one day after visiting with a 74 year old lady who was about to, she had to make a decision on whether or not to amputate her leg. Hmm. And I did my thing, you know, gave her, told her my story briefly, gave her hope and encouraging words and gave her my contact info, told her I'd be back to check on her. And I walked into the elevator to leave the hospital and I said hello and greeted the gentleman that was in the elevator with me. And he looked at me and he said, you walk and act like nothing is wrong with you. And I looked at him and I said, that's because there is nothing wrong with me. Mm. You know? And he just smiled and he, you know, he's like, I love it. You know, and I'm always aware of, you know, how I perceive myself and how I, um, how I present myself to the world because mm -hmm. I know that people are watching and my children are watching. My, my beautiful daughters are watching me and knowing that I do have, you know, my own little tribe here that I have to lead with example. And I tell people confidence doesn't come, you know, it doesn't come overnight. You have to work at it you know, through the different adversity that I've had in my life, you know, I've had to work hard to build my self-esteem, my sense of self, my self-confidence. And, you know, you get disowned by people who you thought loved you. And then you have to rebuild that again. You know, mm -hmm. and hopefully you bounce back even stronger, you know, than, than before. And these are just valuable adversity. You know, we just give us opportunity to be more and more resilient after every adversity that we're going to face in life. That's so good. I, I had to write down, I've never heard this before. Choice is a superpower. I like that a lot. That's a great tagline. I think that's really, really good. And you're right. I mean, it's, it's, you can't even debate that. It, you're correct. Same thing could happen to two different people and one gives up and the other one does what you do and creates amazing nonprofits. And can you tell us a little bit about um, what the nonprofit does and, and how you help people out? Absolutely. So, we operated as just a support group for a long time. You know, I would dish out 30, 40 bucks for refreshments and that was it. Um, but I wanted to be able to do things bigger and better. So in 2014, we became nonprofit and our mission basically is to empower our limb loss community through support. So I'm all over the city providing individual support to amputees at various phases of, you know, of their journey. Um, support groups. Um, our support group hosts anywhere from 50 to 100 amputees every month. Very, very diverse in terms of ages, circumstances, um, where they're at in the process of healing emotionally and physically. Um, being a licensed clinical social worker, I get to help them with um, maneuvering through a very daunting medical system through social services and case management health and fitness programs, super, super important to me because a lot of our members are in this situation because of poor lifestyle choices. So Kilimanjaro was our very first fitness, health and fitness program, which was, uh, I don't know if we'll ever have one you know, that's that big again. Um, we have a 30-day fitness challenge we're doing right now virtually. Um, and basic home modifications, I will help with wheelchair ramps and safety grab bars. We're a very, very small nonprofit. So, um, and I always joke that being Indian, I'm very frugal with our money. So, um, Good. we don't do a whole lot of big things because I want to stretch the, you know, stretch our dollar out. Um, and then car modifications. So if it's someone that's missing both their limbs, we can help put hand controls in. 
uh, right leg amputee, we can put a left foot accelerator in and things that promote independence. You know, that's a big thing. People think they're never going to be able to drive again just because of an amputation, you know, and I'm like, I've been driving my left foot for 30 years. You know, do you want to drive? Well, then, you know, if you want to drive, you'll, you'll be able to drive. (laughs) And then prosthetic limbs. We used to provide prosthetic limbs to the indigent, uh, to, to amputees that were completely indigent, but as a social worker now, I guide them to other resources. Oh, that's good. So if, I mean, do you, do you have fundraisers still? Do you do like private donations or how does that work? So we're always accepting donations. Um, it's always just private. You know, I'm a pretty much a one man show in our foundation. I've always wanted, um, I've never taken a salary. I've never ever been compensated a penny um, from the foundation. <laughs> and, you know, so I'm at the mercy of all my volunteers. So it's pretty much a one man show. Um, so we have a website, you know, that you can donate from. The CNN Heroes, we got a lot of donations from that. So that will carry us through for many, many years. Um, so I don't do big fundraisers because I don't have the time for it or, the, you know, the need for it. I don't apply for big grants because, you know, I, it takes me away from my mission, which is serving my individual people. I don't, you know, I, I guess I can hire a grant writer or something, but I do have to still work, you know. <laughs> my bills keep my babies <laughs> let me uh, I think we need to stop for a second so we can reiterate the fact that you've been running this nonprofit for I guess technically since 2014 even though it's longer than that and you haven't taken a dime out of this nonprofit I mean to me that's just a, a slice of the pie that shows that you are exactly who you're saying you are I mean it's amazing what you're doing and the, to me it's the most selfless thing I've probably seen and just kudos to you. This is just inspiring to hear what you're doing. And do you, so now that, you know, we're kind of still in the middle of this COVID thing, are you doing a lot of virtual? Uh, I guess my question is going to lead into that, but also I'm in Pittsburgh. What if somebody from Pittsburgh, you know, is an amputee and says you're inspiring. Can I call you for help or you know, how does that work? Oh, absolutely. So yes, to answer your first question, um, we're doing a lot of virtual events. Um, so we have to teach a lot of our, we've had to teach a lot of our members how to use Zoom, you know, um, so we'll do a one-on-one Zoom call and practice so they don't miss any of our events. So we have our support groups on Zoom. We do bingo. We have had a couple of virtual comedy nights, which is hilarious. Our guys will do like two, three minutes of stand up, and then we get to pick on the winners and, you know, little prizes. We're doing our fitness challenges virtually. Um, I have a coffee chat with the ladies this coming Sunday. We're still doing volunteer events that we can do from home. Like we have a, uh, we're making peanut butter jelly sandwiches for the homeless. So Saturday, so everyone, they make the sandwiches at their own homes with masks, gloves, and, you know, clean countertops. And then I meet them on sat- uh, on Saturday to collect all the sandwiches for the homeless. We did it two weeks ago. We collected like about 700 sandwiches. Oh. We do. We do. I try to be creative and still find ways for people to stay connected and engaged because a lot of our members are very isolated. You know, transportation is an issue. And then as you know, with COVID, all of us are more isolated. So um, I really, really have to try to find um, creative ways to keep our members engaged and connected and not feeling so alone. So it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. Um, what was your other question? Well, I, I, oh. I just want to oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Oh, it, 
Absolutely. Anybody from anywhere in the world that wants that reaches out to me, I've had people email me from, you know, every continent just about. And I can't help them with prosthetics or um, grab bars or anything that costs money. But the support, my support will reach to anybody that needs it, regardless of where they live. I love that. So, I mean, that's just great. If anyone knows somebody that needs some help, they're going to call you and reach out to you because I think that's, uh, it's just phenomenal what you're doing. What, what gives you, Mona, what gives you the most joy? And maybe we'll, we'll stay in this, in your nonprofit. Like what, what gives you the most joy out of what you're doing? Um, I would say what gives me the most joy is watching our members reach their goals and you know there's no goal that's ever too small it could be being there when they take their first steps in their prosthetic uh company's office and you know and just sharing with them their the joys and the triumphs and achievements it just fuels me like i said to to keep on you know, watching, you know, like I said, I, I try to set the stage for them and then I get to sit back and I get to catch them if they fall <laughs> and then, you know, celebrate with them when Yvonne is one of my members who had both of her legs severed on impact. I mean, she was loading groceries in her SUV and a guy on meth backed right into her. Her legs were on the ground. She was still upright in between the cars. Oh my when I met her, it was 10 years after her accident and she'd been living her life in a wheelchair. And I'm told her, Yvonne, there's nothing wrong with you other than you have a couple legs missing. You have these computerized prosthetics that are like 50 grand each. You need to get out of that wheelchair. She was only like maybe mid thirties. She is now a competitive swimmer. Oh, um, incredible. She travels, you know, for, um, for a prosthetic company sharing her story. And she's been um, a mentor to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people. You know, she, she lives her life full-time um, mobile now, you know, and all it took was somebody believing in her. That's it. I guided her to the right resources and she gives me joy. She gives me fuel to keep going. That is I tell you a thousand stories, but yeah, their successes is what gives me so much joy. Oh, that's so powerful. That is the best story. I clearly hadn't heard you tell that one before. So that is, that is so, you're probably her biggest cheerleader by far, I'm sure. I love it. I love it. It's so oh, that's fun. so cool. So what's, what's next for Mona? What's the, it could be in your personal goals or the nonprofits goals or anything. Do you, do you have anything out there that's inspiring you to keep pushing and going? So I think, yes, I do. Um, my, I don't want to say too long term of a goal, but it's going to be a little bit longer because of COVID is something called high pointing, which I have a goal to hike to the highest point of in every state. So this is something that my boyfriend and I are doing together and we've already summited 13 of the 50 states. Um, but some of them are drive up. So it doesn't, it's not as impressive as you think it is, but it's still kind of cool. Don't, be um, humble. Don't dumb yourself down, Mona. I knew you were going to do that. You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's so fun. People are laughing at me when we got to Florida, you know, cause like 300 <laughs> feet or something. Um, so hopefully the next, you know, hopefully five, five years or so. Cause you know, my kids are with me full time, so I, I can't travel on the weekends or anything either. So, um, and then I'm thinking a short, shorter term goal 
you know, I'm doing Jesse's um, uh, big ass calendar club and we're thinking right. about big misogies. Um, so I'm thinking maybe not a book, but maybe a TED talk. You're going to, you want to be on TED talks? I think that's, it's always been on oh. my mind. Um, but, you know, you have those little voices that, you know, kind of, but I think with this encouraging, amazing tribe that you're a part of, you know, there's so many people that I know will help me um, that I think that's an achievable goal. Well, myself and a lot of others are going to be bigger voices to shut up the little voices telling you not <laughs> to do it. And we're going to, that's a great, oh, you should go for that for sure. I mean, you, that, your story and packaging all that, and I think it needs to be like 18 minutes or something. Oh, you would crush it. Oh, we're going to, I'm going to encourage you and be in your ear for a long Good. time about that. Thank you. Do you have ideas of what angle I can take it? Because like you said, it's so packed with culture and disability and service. And I just have to figure out what my takeaway is, what my big idea is, you know? So yeah. I have lots to think about, but I've been thinking about that since I got my big ass calendar club. And then of course, another goal is to finally complete 29029. I've done it twice and I got two more checkoffs to go. You know, I got to Denali the last time, the vertical yeah. to Denali. So I got, yeah, I will so complete it at some point. I know you will. And for those that don't know, 29029 is a, I guess is a mutual friend of ours, Jess Yitzler, who's an amazing person, entrepreneur. It's the equivalent of climbing Mount Everest. 29029 is the amount of feet that Mount Everest is. And I, th I think you bring up a great point with everything you're saying, Mona, which is I'm a firm believer of the quote, um, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And you've clearly, clearly surrounded yourself with people that are playing the game at a really high level. And it seems like your boyfriend being a, a big factor in that, if you're surrounding yourself with people that are pushing themselves, it's almost like you automatically just you know, I don't want to say follow the crowd, but you want to keep pushing yourself as well, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, just briefly talking about, you know, my boyfriend, um, you know, being with him these past eight years. Matt, I can honestly say that I have grown into a different woman since meeting him. You know, the liberation of becoming the woman that I've always wanted to be and being able to use the voice that I've always wanted to unleash, you know, my, my divorce was very liberating for me, you know, through my grief of losing, you know, that idea of a, you know, perfect marriage and, um, you know, forced me to realize that this was my opportunity for liberation from the constraints of my culture. And, you know, and it's funny because I always tell people that I'm running with scissors now because I'm dating a white guy. <laughs> 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 oh that's funny that's a great i'm just so happy for you that you were able to just do what makes you happiest and what makes you you i mean that's inspiring and i i have to i think you're the perfect person to ask this to with you know people could argue that it's it's a difficult world we live in now clearly you've had setbacks in your own life what do you, do you have a generic response to or advice for people that are are going through a tough time and not necessarily being amputation, but maybe it's a tough um, diagnosis or it's it's a bad breakup or something. I mean, do you have 
generic advice for somebody going through a difficult time? I would say my generic advice, depending on how much time I have with somebody, mm. is if we can live in gratitude, mm. things are manageable. You know, things can always be worse. And not that we need to go and compare ourselves to anybody, but if we can live and always remember our blessings and knowing that other people sometimes don't have what we have, you know, with that mindset, you know, adversity is something that, you know, that you can get through and bounce back from. Um, and remembering that on the other side of that adversity, that challenging situation are all kinds of lessons that are going to help you grow, learn things about yourself, learn things about your loved ones, about the world we live in, that then lessons that you can take to share with others. Um, you know, this world is bigger than just me and you. Hmm. And knowing that, yes, this is happening to me right now, but I'm stronger than my circumstances. And, you know, and I've been blessed to be able to share, you know, so much of my lessons and wisdom, you know, to people in need of inspiration or in need of hope and solace during their challenging times, regardless if it's, you know, amputation or anything, you know, divorce or, you know, cancer, a medical diagnosis, you know, a broken refrigerator, a flood in the kitchen, you know, <laughs> things can always be worse. You're right. Living in gratitude, that's a, I don't think you could have said that any better. Do, do you have a, I'm, a, I'm like a morning and night person with gratitude. And it's like, I need to do it first thing in the morning or I'll forget to do it most likely. Do you, do you have any routine that you do to make sure that you ground yourself in that gratitude? It's, it's throughout the day. You know, I, I, I've never needed to, you know, make a point of morning or nighttime because I am truly throughout my day, you know, just, just grateful. And my kids being with me, you know, it's a constant, you know what, we just got to be grateful. We have another refrigerator in the garage. <laughs> we still have, you know, we, we still have ice cream. Um, so I don't have any, yeah, I don't, I used to have a gratitude journal. Mm. But I'm just really, I'm really bad. That's one thing that I struggle with is um, routine. So that's, that's another thing on my, on my to-do list from Jesse's lessons is just to kind of create. I saw your list of what you're doing like every 30 minutes. I know when you're having lunch with your wife, not to bother you. Um, you know, so I need to kind of structure myself better. But no, I would say that, you know, I remember to be grateful throughout my day. That's great. And... and I, I'm thinking maybe maybe when you did the gratitude journal that just embedded in your heart and your mind to just be grateful throughout the day. I mean, I don't know. I mean, everybody does it different. Um, right. Yeah. So, yeah. I would think that mine is just kind of just kind of throughout the day. And, you know, when the little micro micro, um, you know, little things happen in life and we have to um, build on our micro resilience, you know, like the little things in life, you know, practicing, you know, gratitude throughout the day, you know, that, that's a tool to, you know, to have those micro resiliencies during the day when the small things happen during the day. You know, your Wi-Fi doesn't work or your audio doesn't work. Okay, well, you know, I can get through it. I'm not going to get pissed off and throw my computer. Okay. <laughs> you, know? you know what I love about that is now I have 
something that I can anchor that to with you since you had, since we were supposed to do the interview and then you had some issues with the refrigerator and everything. And that just proved to me you're living exactly what you're saying because you didn't even flinch when we, when we chatted in with the text messages. And I thought that was so, so um, it just showed the real you. And I love that. Yeah. That was very cool. Yeah. I love it. More energy, right? It takes more energy to get pissed off and right. Like, all right, you know, I got to call my insurance. I got to call. I was shocked when I saw the flood in my kitchen and garage. And I was like shocked. And then I'm like, okay, think, think, think. What's first? What's first? You know, <laughs> you plowed so. through it. You powered through it. And I think that's so cool. Okay. So I end uh, all these talks with what I call the power five. So it's five quick questions. Some of them are, are a little deeper, but let's see if you can come up with like a one or two sentence response to these five questions and we'll see how you go. I'm kind of excited. Right. How do you want to be remembered? How do I want to be remembered? Um, I think I want to be remembered for my resilience and my strength to overcome. Um, and as a constant reminder to other people, that with the right mindset that they can get through, you know, all of their inevitable adversities through life. Um, and I don't know if that was one or two sentences, okay. but I want to be known for my service to others. And as a constant reminder that we are bigger, you know, it, this world is bigger than us and we have a responsibility to pay our blessings forward to others. Always, always, always. Always. I love it. And I love it. And I can't believe you ended with that because my second question was going to be, what are you most thankful for? Oh gosh. <laughs> Lots. Honestly, Matt, I'm, I'm so thankful for my mom and dad. You know, a lot of people would think, well, gosh, you know, your culture, you know, okay. and, but the examples that my parents led with, you know, they were very courageous in being immigrants to this country and, and making the American dream happen. And, um, you know, the, the nurturing that my mom gave me is part of why I'm such a nurturer. So I am most grateful for my mom and dad. That's such, what a powerful answer, given, you know, some of the tough situations you've had, but you, you are most thankful for them. I love that. I think that's so good. That just shows who you are again, which is, uh, it's just amazing. Your mindset is so, so, so yeah, it's the truth. Uh, okay. If I see Mona at a wedding reception or somewhere where there's music playing, what is her go-to dance move? None. <laughs> None. Zero. You don't like to dance? I'm, I'm socializing. You know what? A lot of that is, well, I'm not coordinated. I can't dance. <laughs> and I always blame it on my, okay, that I'll blame on my mom and dad. Because I wasn't allowed to go to dances. I wasn't allowed to, you know, to do any of those those type of things growing up. But still, I guess if you have rhythm, you have rhythm, regardless of what your culture is, right? But no, none. You'll see me socializing. Okay. You'll, yeah, you'll see me not on the dance floor. <laughs> you'll be, be working the room, though. You'll be working the room. Oh, that's good. My mouth. <laughs> <laughs> me and you both. Okay. What has been and. I'm interested to hear you answer this because I think there's an obvious answer, but we'll see what you say. What's been 
the biggest setback you've overcome? I think I would say the biggest setback I've overcome has been my divorce. Mm. And I learned that I had to, you know, you have to sometimes lose yourself to really find yourself. And, um, you know, I had lost, you know, e even though it was not an arranged marriage, he was an Indian man and it was still a traditional relationship. And I had lost my identity. I lost my voice. I lost so much of who I was and, you know, and my divorce and learning the lessons from my, from my marriage. Um, yeah, I would think that was the biggest thing I have grown from was my divorce. And my kids, you know, my kids got to see that, you know, women can be strong. My mm -hmm. kids were five and seven at the time, and they saw me power through, you know, getting up and moving and starting over. Um, so, yeah, more than my disability, my accident, losing my leg, my, my in-laws, you know, judging me, I would say my divorce. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I... what, did you, what did you think I was going to say? Well, I, I guess, I mean, um, the, the accident and the amputation, I thought, I mean, that's kind of the obvious one that stands out, but I mean, that's, it, it's how you answer it. So that's, uh, it's just, it's, you've been, you've overcome so much, which is, I think why I was so excited to talk to you because, uh, you just continuously look on the bright side and want to live in service. And it's just amazing. I, I, I can't say it enough. It's awesome. Uh, okay. Last one. Who is your hero? My daddy is my hero. Mm. My is daddy passed away about two years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. And thank you. And, you know, again, watching him um, in, his, in his life story is just amazing. You know, from back in, uh, he was born and raised in Africa. And, you know, all the odd jobs he had. I mean, he always had a goal in mind which was to come to America and, you know, I, we could have a whole interview on, you know, mm -hmm. on my dad and his life story. Um, and when he passed, you know, I had told him that, you know, I would, I'm going to take care of my parents until they take their last breath. And that's exactly what I did with my dad. Mm -hmm. And he died a very unhappy man, mm -hmm. um, for, you know, different, you know, different, another conversation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I reminded him, you know, and up until the time that he was still coherent, that he has done so much for so many people. When he came to this country and became a citizen, he sponsored one family at a time to come to America and he would take responsibility for them. He would help them get settled, help them find an apartment, and then he would call the next family over. So, and they've had kids and they've had kids. And truly he's responsible for hundreds and hundreds of people being successful in this country and contributing, you know, to our economy and to the great things in our country. Um, you know, and he is, he is my hero. Oh, that's, that's... that he sacrificed a lot for his family. Yeah. I, it sounds like he did. And wow, what an amazing Just thing. knowing that, that I know that my daddy died being proud of me makes everything just is just so worth it that's beautiful that is uh wow he does sound like a hero this guy that's just next level and it sounds like you're you're a chip off the old block in the service that you're doing for others so uh thank him and thank you for everything you're doing i will close it by just uh do you want to tell everybody if 
they want to follow you on social media or connect with you where they can go? Absolutely. So you can connect with me in lots and lots of ways. Of course, social media, um, Mona Patel and uh, San, follow the San Antonio Amputee Foundation on Facebook and Twitter. And my cell number is everywhere. Area code 210-269-6662. Um, I'm a phone call away. There's anything I can do for you, you know, for any of your loved ones. I truly, truly am happy, happy to give, uh, you know, my heart and my, my time to you. I love it. And what if somebody wants to make a donation? Can they do it online? Absolutely. They can go to our website, San Antonio um, Amputee Foundation, and push the donate button. And we are forever grateful. I love that. And we know that... And we know that 100% of the funds are going to the individuals, right? Absolutely. I think that's great. Well, I can't thank you enough. You're, I mean, you inspired me, which I, I knew that coming in, but I hope you inspired a lot of listeners because there's just so many great nuggets in here and I was writing down as many as I could, but this has been so fun and so just, just to get to know you deep down, I appreciate you sharing your stories and your past, your present, and your future. So thank you for your time, Mona. Thank you, and I appreciate you for taking the time again and thinking that my story was worthy. It is story. worthy. Yes, very worthy. And you're going to write a book soon, and I can't wait to read it. <laughs> One day. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mona. Thank you. Right. Have a beautiful week. Hey, you too. Thanks for listening to another episode of Living the Dream with Matt Scaletti. I'm so grateful for you. Please share this podcast on your social media so others can benefit from this valuable content. Also, please subscribe to my podcast because if you aren't, I am watching you. (laughs) Check me out on social media and message me if you need me as your keynote speaker. At Matt Scaletti on social media. I respond to all messages. Thanks and I love you so much.